the History Channel original podcast. Hello, History This Week listeners. It is Sally here. Before we start this episode, we just have a quick update for you. We are hard at work on great new episodes for 2022. And in the meantime, we wanted to bring you some of our favorite episodes from the past two years. So this month, we will revisit some History This Week hits and be back on January 31st with brand new episodes. We hope you enjoy. January 22nd, 1984, Super Bowl Sunday. The LA Raiders are playing the Washington Redskins. 77.6 million people are watching. And honestly, it's not a great game. A little after halftime, LA is in the lead 28 to nine and Washington never makes a comeback. But Something happens during the third quarter commercial break. Something that makes the viewers sit up and pay attention. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information. An ad starts. But is it an ad? We see a dystopian future unfold. Masses of stony-faced people, dressed in gray, shaved bald, marching in single-file lines. Meanwhile, a giant screen broadcasts Big Brother. We are one people, one will, one resolve. Droning on and on about conformity and the unification of thoughts. It's Orwell's 1984 come to life. But then, a lone, colorful figure cuts through the gray. A woman, dressed in bright workout gear, very 80s. She sprints toward the screen, a sledgehammer in her hand. The woman launches her hammer at the screen. It explodes in a burst of light, and the tagline rolls. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Then, it's back to the game. But across the country, audiences are stunned. I imagine them pausing with, like, chips halfway to their mouths. The 60-second ad is like nothing they've seen before. Until now, ads were just... You can't deny it's a great pancake. What kind of pancake is that? Aunt Jemima Buttermilk Complete. pen in metallic tones is a pearl of a gift. But this is cinema. It's directed by Ridley Scott, who made Alien and Blade Runner. It has drama, a mini story arc, bold images. So the ad itself is a revolution. But why exactly is the product that it's promoting so important? How did the Macintosh almost single-handedly bring computers out of think tanks and research labs and into our homes and eventually our pockets? If we hadn't had the Macintosh, would we have smartphones and tablets and the dot-com revolution and all of these other things? Um, We might not. I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today, we go back to the launch of the very first Macintosh computer. From then on, technology, 
advertising and culture would never be the same. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay. Quick history lesson for those of us who may have forgotten how exactly these personal computers of ours got into our hands and pockets. The first computers were used during World War II. They were these massive machines that took up entire rooms and carried out very specific functions, mostly complex calculations. Fast forward, innovations happen, technology gets better, and by the mid-1970s, we have microcomputers, later called personal computers or PCs. They're faster and more powerful and more affordable than ever. We talked about this with Alex Pong. I'm a historian of science and technology, and I've written about the history of Silicon Valley. So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are both Silicon Valley natives. They meet in high school. They bond over a shared love of electronics and of computers. Quick explainer here, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are the two Apple founders. The story goes that they built the first Apple One in the Jobs family home. So they come of age in a period when the cost of electronics is really starting to fall very dramatically. So if you are 16 years old, by the early 1970s, you're at a point where you can actually buy this stuff with money from your summer job and just play around with it the way that Steve Wozniak did. One of the first successful models was called the Altair. It was a $400 build-it-yourself computer that had no screen and no keyboard. Basically, you could input data by flipping some switches on or off, and lights on the front would flash in corresponding patterns. And the machine was a hit with the tech crowd. Not long after the Altair's launch, two young programmers who had worked on it went off to found their own company, Microsoft. But as far as the look and feel of these machines, all PCs still look pretty much the same. The monitor is always a black screen. Users have to type out long strings of code in blocky green text to run programs. The first generation of personal computers was all about text interfaces. In order to open a program, you had to type a command to tell the computer to open this program. You didn't even buy software. You had these magazines that had programs typed out. And if you wanted a word processor or some other program, you actually typed it in yourself. You didn't double-click on anything because there was nothing to click on and no way to click on it. Unless you knew programming language, computers just were not a part of everyday life. Until 1984. Two days after that iconic Super Bowl ad airs, 28-year-old Steve Jobs takes the stage at a California convention center. And he looks nothing like the Steve Jobs we would come to recognize. 
He's got long, floppy hair and a big green bow tie. His suit looks at least one size too big. And he seems nervous. Next to his podium, there's a big black bag. But before we see this machine that will change our lives, let's talk about how the Macintosh came to exist in the first place. This whole language of Jobs and Wozniak being kind of pirates, of Apple Computer being this kind of, you know, edgy, almost anti-corporate environment is one that comes out of that counterculture of the late 60s and 1970s. And what they're playing on is this idea that the computer itself is this revolutionary device. They're also working among almost a sort of rebel alliance of ex-Hewlett-Packard people, university students, professors at Stanford and Berkeley, people who are thinking really hard about what the future of computing should look like. So by the early 1980s, when they start work on the Macintosh, Jobs and Wozniak have had a lot of success with the Apple II. They've taken the company public. The economics of the industry are at a point where you can actually take this vision of making these revolutionary machines and actually make them and sell them at a price point that is accessible to everybody. So on that convention center stage in 1984, it is no surprise that Steve Jobs is a little nervous. He's only 28, and the Mac is basically his life's work. He opens that black bag and pulls out the very first Macintosh PC. By today's standards, it is boxy and clunky, a big cream-colored cube, squarish, wired mouse. But in 1984, it is a showstopper. Steve whips out a floppy disk and inserts it. Some of you will remember floppy disks, the pre-CD way to store information. If you don't, they look like the save icon on Microsoft Word. The monitor lights up. And text, not code, but human English, scrolls across the screen. The machine even talks. Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. The crowd goes nuts. When you first turned on a Macintosh, the first thing you saw was an icon, a little smiling Mac, and then it loads up this graphical user interface. And so what is that? The graphical user interface, it's not word-driven, it's not command-driven. Instead, it's icons that you interact with. You've got files stored in folders. You've got folders stored on a desktop. And you interact with them mainly by clicking on them with a device called a computer mouse. And that sounds really basic. And it's just the way that, you know, we interact with computers these days. But the Macintosh is the first computer that brings that technology to market, which made it accessible to everybody, but also set the standard that we still live with today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, Steve Jobs and the Macintosh programmers did not come up with this single-handedly. As the story goes, Steve got a lot of inspiration from Xerox Park, a Palo Alto research lab. Some accounts have him touring the facility in 1979, while others have him seeing the technology at a trade show. Either way, before the Macintosh, icons on the screen, windows, mouses were already in use. In Xerox Park technology, and at a place called the Stanford Research Institute before that. But the technology had been locked away in those research facilities. And apparently, the owners didn't understand just how marketable it was. But they were about to find out. In a way, that very first Mac is a little bit like Star Wars, right? In the sense that, you know, when Star Wars comes out, it is this wonderfully novel story. But it's also a combination of all kinds of things that are really familiar, right? You know, like space movies from the 1930s cowboy movies, mythology. So it's a lot of very familiar elements, but put together in a way that is incredibly imaginative. The Macintosh is somewhat the same. The Macintosh hit shelves on January 24th, 1984, with a price tag of $2,500. That is the equivalent of about $5,000 today. It was more than twice as expensive as many of its competitors. Still, Steve Jobs was sure that people really wanted an accessible computer. He predicted that Apple would sell 50,000 Macs in the first 100 days. And he was right. Better than right. They sold 50,000 Macs in just a little over two months. And by the 100-day mark, they had sold over 20,000 more. The Macintosh is conceived and marketed as a machine for everybody. But one of the ironies of its initial marketing is that Apple gives a bunch of Macintoshes to, like, you know, Andy Warhol. They bring in the photographer who shot Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album. He spends half a day with the programming team and gets these wonderful pictures of them looking about as cool as a bunch of computer nerds possibly can look. So the early marketing around the Macintosh does a really good job of stimulating interest among innovators and early adopters. People who are willing to spend a lot of money to get the latest gear so the Mac sells really well for the first few months with that group, and then things start to slow down a little bit. They enter this period where it's starting to look like sales of the Mac are just going to be kind of ho-hum. But Apple wasn't just trying to outsell their competitors. 
They were trying to change the culture. That takes time and a great marketing campaign. We shall Apple's 1984 Super Bowl ad was shocking and innovative, but it almost never made it to air. The concept was so out there that the Apple board wanted to cancel the whole thing. Steve Jobs fought them on it right up to the air date. Steve Wozniak even offered to pay half of the air costs out of pocket if the board refused to fund it. And in the end, the Steves got their way. The ad made it to broadcast. It was a first in a lot of ways. Director Ridley Scott was fresh off the success of Blade Runner. Before this, a big-time movie director would not have been caught dead on a commercial set. And though the ad ran just once on national TV, it was rebroadcast in news features across the country, which meant a lot of free advertising for Apple. And other companies took notice and followed suit for decades to come. By 2018, Super Bowl ad revenue reached $414 million that year alone. Meanwhile, production and airtime costs reach well into the billions. And it's now commonplace to have big-time actors and directors making commercials. You practically can't turn on the TV without seeing Matthew McConaughey waxing poetic behind the wheel of a luxury sedan. So the Mac Super Bowl commercial changed advertising— But it also did something else. It helped change the way people saw the computer. It actually isn't so much about the Macintosh as a computer. It's about rebellion. It's about standing up to conformity and authoritarianism and replacing it with something that is free and personal and friendly. That's what the commercial is about. The message of that 1984 ad was pretty simple. Buy a Mac and be an individual, not an automaton. And people really listened. They bought lots and lots of Apple computers. And later, of course, Apple phones. Apple wanted to say, this computer is the future. And they couldn't have known then just how right they were. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn and sound edited by Dan Rosado. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. <laughs>